one of the applications of metal nanocrystals in photodynamic therapy is to have the metal nanocrystal be located near tissue you would like to heat up to damage. So for example, cancerous cells, you could have specific tagants on the outsides of these nanocrystals that would link them to this area of a tumor. And then you can have them excite the plasmon resonance in these nanocrystals directly in very localized areas and heat them up to destroy cancerous cells, for example. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, Tom Miller and Puneet Upadhyay. In today's episode, how quantum dots enable beauty all around us. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Ilan Genlaplant. She is a senior scientist at Nanosys, a nanotechnology company focused on manufacturing quantum dot materials for display products. Ilan has extensive experience working with quantum dots, so we are very excited to learn more about this fascinating technology during this discussion. Thank you for joining us, Ilan. Thanks for having me. I'm definitely really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, great. So, you know, to kick us off here, let's start with the basics. What are quantum dots and why do we call them quantum dots? Sure. So quantum dots are really, really small crystals, and that's something that we can make in the lab. And they have properties that are a lot like semiconductors, but because of their small size, we can control those properties. Semiconductors, you can often think of them as being able to absorb and emit light of specific wavelengths. And what's special about quantum dots is that you can control which wavelengths they absorb and emit from by their physical size. Right. So by really small, um, that's something on the order of one to 10 nanometers usually. Wow. I usually like to give some sort of example of what that means in the real world. So a human hair is something like 100 microns in diameter. So you can imagine that quantum dots are something like 10,000 of them would stack in the width of a human hair. So they're really, really small materials. And where do they, I'm just curious if you knew like where they got this name quantum dots, you know, it makes them sound like this very cool and like mystical material. They are, they are very cool and mystical. So a lot of the properties arise from quantum mechanical concepts. So that's where the concept of quantum dot comes from. So the way in which the wavelength is modified as a function of the size has to do with the quantum mechanical properties of the material itself. Okay. And, you know, you had mentioned they're generally semiconductor materials, but specifically what are quantum dots typically made of? So quantum dots have been being worked on for about 30 years now. And a lot of the original syntheses focused on, I guess, cadmium and zinc and lead calcogenide materials. So those are cadmium selenide, cadmium telluride. So a lot of the original work was based on those materials. Since then, there have been a lot of new materials that have been introduced to the world that we can make now in the lab. So these are some of the 3,5 semiconductors like indium phosphide. And then even some more recent materials classes like perovskite crystals, which are more ionic, can actually precipitate out of solution at room temperature. So the longer the the field continues, the more materials we have access to and we can make chemically in the lab. Right. That end up falling under this broad family of quantum dots, broadly speaking. Very cool. Okay. And so I'm guessing, you know, with continued innovation, that'll lead to maybe more various applications or potentially just more improved performance in, in these applications. And so I really just wanted to discuss that with you. You know, what are some of the potential applications for quantum dots in various sectors of the industry? So I guess, obviously, we're focused in displays, and that's primarily because these materials emit wavelengths of very specific light and color. So it's a really powerful property to have if you're looking at displays. But 
that control over wavelength is useful to a lot of other different applications as well. So some of the early uses of quantum dots was actually in solar cells. So semiconducting materials in general are used in solar cells because they can absorb light from the solar spectrum and that light can be converted into electricity. Quantum dots are usually created um, in solution and you can actually maintain solubility in these liquid solutions. So in addition to having semiconducting properties, you can also treat them as an ink or a liquid. So you can move them around and make films out of them and print them and do roll-to-roll -roll transfers. So that was really an exciting application in terms of the solar cell field. In addition to solar cells, there are a lot of other different applications that you can use them for. Biological tagging and imaging is another really important aspect of this. So being able to have quantum dots with specific tagants linked to particular areas of a cell, you can actually identify different regions by which color they're emitting when you go back and you look at the images. So. Those are some of the main original classes of applications for quantum dots, but there are a lot of new potential fields as well. So people are talking more and more about smart windows and smart lighting. So being able to control specifically which wavelengths of light can either come in through a window or which wavelengths of light are emitted indoor lighting that we use. Wow. Can we talk about like why that's important? So with these potential new smart windows, what is the, the importance of dictating which wavelengths can go in and out. Sure. So I guess if you're talking about really large buildings, being able to control which wavelengths of light could help you to control the interior temperature. There are also more advanced applications that you could imagine where you could actually have some of those wavelengths directed outwards to the edges of the windows and then collected in some sort of useful concept like a solar cell. So it's not just a filter, but it's more of an active conversion of that energy from something that would have been wasted and useless if it's just heating a building that you didn't want heated, right. but actually converted into electricity in some sort of application. So you're you're implying that we potentially have solar windows in our future, like solar panel windows in our future. It's a possibility, yeah. It's a possibility, okay. And, you know, besides the prospects of solar windows and, and all these novel applications, you know, based on your experience working in this field, what makes you passionate about working on these quantum dot technologies day to day? So I guess my first introduction to quantum dots was when I was actually an undergrad in college. And sort of the first image a lot of people see of these quantum dots are little vials of glowing colors across the rainbow. Honestly, that was really captivating to me to know that something is not only technically an interesting material to work on, but is also physically beautiful. And I think that beauty of quantum dots also translates to the displays that they're in, right? So humans are definitely spending more and more of their time in front of these displays, and it's the way we interact with the world largely. Yes. So to have those images be more realistic and more vivid and capture more of what we actually see in the world is really important. So I think that's a really exciting application of these materials. I just wanted to dive into those, those scientific principles, really. You know, what are those fundamental scientific principles that govern the unique ways that quantum dots behave? A lot of people encounter the concept of the particle in a box in introductory quantum mechanics. So I guess that's if you take a wave and you sort of compress the space in which it can exist, the amplitude of the energy of that wave goes up. So that's a concept that applies to quantum dots. So you can imagine in an atom, you have orbitals where your electrons normally exist. And similarly, in a semiconducting material, all of those atomic orbitals build up into large continuous band structures. and the electrons and the holes in your system exist in a certain space in the material. And that space is usually something on the order of, say, 5 to 50 nanometers. 
So if you take the crystals and you actually make them physically smaller than that space in which your excited state would normally live in the material, you're confining the space that the wave function can take up and you can modify its energy that way. So that's how you're able to modify the color just based on the size of the quantum dot, right? Or or correct me if I'm wrong, but if you make those slight variations in the size, you kind of mess with the extent to which you're confining it and that changes the energy in turn. Exactly. That's the most fundamental aspect of how these quantum dots behave. But then there are a lot of more advanced methods and technologies that we use to actually build them up to be functional materials, right? So if you imagine just taking this material and making it small, you can control the wave function, but you've taken something that used to be a very large crystal and now it's small. So a lot of the atoms of your crystal are now actually sitting on the surface and they don't have the same coordination chemistry that they used to have. They used to have some number of near neighbors and be bonded to all of those. And now if you imagine you've cut this crystal into a very small chunk, some of those atoms no longer have those near neighbors, right? So there are a lot of aspects of what to do about that to make the material useful. So specifically, you could combine multiple layers of materials together. That's a really common concept in emissive quantum dots. So people talk about core shell quantum dots. And the concept is usually that you create your core wavelength by controlling the size of your base semiconductor. And then you can grow additional layers on the outside of that of something that's a wider band gap semiconductor material. So you can essentially create a larger crystal. So your surface is now further away, but your excited state only lives in your core. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you talked about the band gap, right? So in classes, we've associated band gaps with semiconductors and metals and kind of compared the two. So I was wondering, how does that work with with quantum dots? How do these principles vary between semiconductor-based and metal-based quantum dots? Sure. So a lot of things change when you make materials small. So not just how much space an excited state can take up, but these surface to volume properties also impact other aspects as well. So one of these, one of the simple concepts is actually the melting point, that if you take a metal that has a melting point over a thousand degrees, if you make it really small, you can actually lower its melting point down to a few hundred degrees Celsius. So that's a huge impact on it. People have also seen in metal nanocrystals that you can control the plasmon wave function. So the energy at which the electrons oscillate in the system. And that's useful in metal nanocrystals for various sorts of photodynamic or phototherapy applications as well. So it's something really different from how semiconductor quantum dots behave. That's interesting. So you mentioned for these specific types of therapies, controlling those plasmon energies is important in the metals, but like why exactly does that matter for that application? Like what's, what's that purpose there? So either for mantle nanocrystals and phototherapies, or actually for also semiconductor quantum dots for photodynamic therapy, you need wavelengths that can pass through human tissue to excite these materials. So for example, one of the applications of metal nanocrystals and photodynamic therapy is to have the metal nanocrystal be located near tissue you would like to heat up to damage. So for example, cancerous cells, you could have specific tagants on the outsides of these nanocrystals that would link them to this area of a tumor. And then you can have them be excited by a wavelength that's, I guess, human human tissue would be transparent to those wavelengths. So you could have sort of near IR, near IR light or wavelengths excite the plasmon resonance in these nanocrystals directly in very localized areas and heat them up to destroy cancerous cells, for example. And so, so that process that you just outlined, which is taking these cells, sort of programming them or, you know, for lack of better words, to go attack a specific part of the body, heat it, destroy it. You call that photodynamic therapy. Is that what that process is coined? Yes. Yeah. That's how I've been. That's how I've heard of it. Okay. 
no, I've never heard of that prior to today. So that's, that's super cool. Okay. First time that's come up on the show. And so glad we were able to, glad we were able to bring that up. You touched on the surface area to volume ratio. And that's something that I've seen is talked a lot about in classes. When we talk about like nanoparticles in general, it seems very, very important. So can you talk more about that? Why is that ratio important when we get into the quantum scale or the nanoscale? Sure. So I guess the the general concept of surface area to volume ratios is just sort of the geometric concept, right? That that they scale at different orders of magnitude relative to the radius of a sphere. But when you talk about things like metal nanocrystals and those melting points, it's that often you can look at the surface energy versus the interior energy of a material. And suddenly, if you think about really small materials, the surface energy is a large contribution where it used to be a very small effect. So for example, different crystal facets have different crystal energies. You would have them grow differently. And those the, the melting point is largely from the surface energy suddenly being such a large contribution to the total system. And just a quick question here. This may not be of any importance, but um, you had mentioned this concept of melting point a few times. Is that a, as a governing principle of any importance to the quantum dot space? Or is that in terms of discussing some of these scientific principles, just one of the things that has a significant change in contribution as you start to mess with the size of your particles? I think that's more of just a significant change in the contribution. I mean, mostly I focus on inorganic semiconductors and crystalline materials. So then when you start talking about surface energies and growth kinetics, that's when it becomes really important. So we want these really small crystalline materials. Their size is really important to their properties. But being able to synthetically control that in the lab is really where, I guess, I come in and scientists who work in material science and chemistry on this come in that because every atom is now so important, you need to be able to build up these crystals in solution with incredible precision and control, right? So we pick particular chemical precursors that can react at very specific chemical rates to be able to produce the materials in solution that will then precipitate and grow as crystals. And every aspect of that growth is important. So the rate that it happens at, being able to keep the crystals a particular size, making sure that the defect concentrations are as low as possible, and being able to control the size and shape of the final material is really all critical to the final performance capabilities that we want. So we want these specific emission wavelengths, but in order to be able to do that, we need to be able to control the chemistry. Awesome. And so to talk about medical imaging, just to go back to it very briefly, why do we choose quantum dots or why are they an effective application when it comes to this tagging? Is it their ability to link it to specific proteins or parts of the body? Is it the ability to control the emissions or the, the wavelengths, or is it something else entirely? Kind of all of the above. Okay. <laughs> so the first is that the wavelengths are so tunable and controllable that you can have, I guess, multiplexed imaging. You could have different wavelengths and you could have different filter cube sets in your biological imaging and look at one layer and then another. As you mentioned, they can be specifically tagged to particular areas. So Quantum dots are small crystals, but they also have organic molecules that you can bind to the outside. And those organic molecules that are bound to the outside typically are used to control the solubility properties, so what sorts of solvents you can put these crystals in. But they can also be specifically linked to particular biological entities or antibodies that can bind to specific locations. So you can use them to direct the location of a quantum dot in a system. So for biological imaging, you can put particular antibodies on that will link them to only certain areas of a cell, and you can identify them that way. There's a third property of quantum dots that are kind of interesting compared to other dyes, and that's just that they're really good absorbers, particularly if you ever look at 
to photon absorption. So sometimes in biological systems, it's similarly to what we were talking about with photodynamic therapy. You need the material to absorb light, but it also has to pass through some sort of other medium. So in biological imaging, this is often water or some sort of buffer. Um, so you need to choose excitation wavelength that can pass through that medium without being absorbed. And your final tagging will actually see and absorb. So quantum dots are really good at absorbing um, these wavelengths that are transmissible through biological media. Switching gears here a little bit, you had mentioned at the start that a lot of the technologies that have applications from quantum dots are display technologies. Going into that, you know, you and and your company, Nanosys, have collaborated with companies such as Samsung and LG to tailor your quantum dots for various display products, which has given you insight into the engineering problems that come about with trying to apply quantum dots in this space. And so what are those advantages that quantum dots provide compared to the current technologies that are available in this space, in the display product space? So there are, I guess, three main subjects in which quantum dots really have an advantage in displays. So the first is about color. That quantum dots can emit in very, very specific wavelengths. And what that means is if you can combine a very specific blue, green, and red back together, you can recombine those to create a larger array of the colors that humans can perceive. So for example, older display technologies could actually only recreate about a third of what humans could perceive. And by being able to be more specific about the wavelengths that are the the source of the light in your system, we can get a lot closer to reproducing what's actually in the environment that humans can see. So color tunability and specificity is the first application. The second is about brightness and efficiency. So natural light is actually quite bright compared to displays. You can actually tell that, right? If you ever tried to watch television on a lower quality set in something with natural room light on, then it's really hard to see anything that's going on. So being able to have brighter displays actually makes them more vivid and lifelike. And it's easier to see the colors when it's closer to what we're used to naturally perceiving. So quantum dots are good in this area in two applications. The first is that they're really efficient. It's actually possible to make these materials with nearly 100% efficiency at converting one wavelength of light to another. And the other is that they're pretty stable materials. So because they're inorganic crystals, they can handle a lot of cycles of absorption and re-emission without damage. And this is an advantage compared to organic molecules that often have some sort of photochemical breakdown if they go through too many absorption and emission cycles. And then I guess the third aspect of one of the advantages of quantum dots compared to other technologies is about clarity. So quantum dots respond really, really quickly. You can turn them on and off in billionths of a second. So it's a really fast absorption and emission cycle. And if you compare them to other materials like phosphors, those can be much, much slower. So those can be microseconds to even milliseconds, depending on the material that you're talking about. So it's actually, if you're talking about anything that's a high frame rate, you really need your materials to turn on and turn off as quickly as possible. So there's actually um, an interesting example of this. If you look at some of the displays that are based on some of these slower emitting phosphors, if you watch a fast moving object, something like a soccer ball, you can actually see a leading blue edge and a trailing red edge that has to do with the response time of the red phosphor in the system. No, I'm going to be on the lookout now. Like I'm going to go have to watch like a football game or a soccer game. And like, I'm going to be staring two inches away from the screen. That's incredible how like tight that timing has to be to really get that true perception of what's going on. And you mentioned, so you mentioned previously it, 
they're only the display products can only get to one third of what humans are able to perceive. You said we're much closer to that now. I was wondering what could it get to with quantum dot display products in terms of natural human perception? Sure. So I guess there are a lot of different standards in color technology that are set by sort of international regulatory bodies. And with quantum dots, we can get to very high 90% or not quite 100%, but high 90s of these regulatory standards. And I think we're constantly pushing the boundaries of this. I think if you're talking about recombining three specific wavelengths, there's always going to be a limit, but it's far greater than it's ever been before. I just wanted to touch on, you know, where are the growth areas in this field now? You know, we were preparing for this interview. We had talked earlier and we discussed that improving the stability of quantum dots and developing new quantum dot chemistries are important areas of growth for this technology. But I wanted to ask you, how is Nanosys looking to innovate in these areas moving forward? So I guess for any consumer product, stability is a really important aspect of it. It's not just that it looks beautiful right away when you make it, but it's that has to live through the entire lifetime of the product. So for displays right now, through the engineering and the testing that we've done, um, we can make materials that last for tens of thousands of hours of operating time, which is really, really good. But moving into future applications, we would like to be able to create even brighter displays, and that requires higher operating flux of the excitation light source is operating at an even higher intensity. Some applications require different handling conditions. So being able to move and print quantum dots into really small pixels, being able to have really thin layers of these materials. So each quantum dot is responsible for converting more light than previously, or even not having any sort of protective barrier layers built into the display manufacturer. So some of these are just on streamlining how the final product is made. So for all these different applications, from a materials perspective, it's our responsibility to make sure that it can handle these new conditions. So one of these, if it's on flux stability, right, we can think of a lot of different aspects of the quantum dot that make it stable or unstable. So some of those are internal to the quantum dot structure itself. So any crystalline material can have defects that are present. And specifically, if you're talking about layering multiple materials together, to make a core shell quantum dot, each layer of that material can be slightly different, right? So for example, the crystal lattice of the core can be slightly different from the crystal lattice of the shell. And as you build up layers of one material on another, you can have defects that form at those interfaces. And those defects may not have significant implications at low excitation flux, but suddenly if you turn up excitation flux, they can serve as either problems under those operating conditions or sources for longer term degradation. So chemically, we're looking at the, I guess, internal perfection of the structure and also what types of these barrier layers that we can build up. Some of those are inorganic. So these wide band gap shell materials and others are actually organic. So the organic molecules that are on the surface of these quantum dots can also have strong implications to the long-term stability of the materials. So I guess my question is then in the future, in your opinion, do you foresee more innovation from like the new materials side or kind of adjusting existing materials? You know, there are so many different types of quantum dots. We mentioned like cadmium selenide, different three, five semiconductors. So how do you foresee the space moving forward? So I think it's in both. There are definitely new material classes that are being developed, we're working on, and they have 
significantly different properties from from other materials. So some of these are where the band levels are and relative to vacuum dictates what types of photochemical reactions you can have when you excite the system, right? So a lot of stability, it's based on the, you know, fundamental physical properties of the material and not just how you make it. So definitely by looking at different classes of materials, you can choose materials that are more or less stable. But being able to develop a synthesis, an entirely new material class is quite difficult. So there's a lot on the short term of just improving sort of the classes that we do have. So being able to make sure that there are absolutely no crystalline defects in the material is an important aspect of it. So some of everything. We asked some of our listeners on our Instagram page what questions they might have had about quantum dots. And Jalen, who is one of our listeners, was curious about how quantum dots can be used in the context of food and agriculture. So, you know, we did some research and we found that there was this uh, firm called UBQD that is actually a partner of Nanosys. And they use this quantum dot nanomaterial application that helps boost crop yields in greenhouses. And so, you know, how do quantum dots facilitate this increase in greenhouse productivity and what is the material science of their properties that allow them to be able to do this? Well, that's correct. We're excited to partner with Ubiquity to help them bring their technology into the market. And I think it ties back to what we were talking about earlier with smart windows and smart lighting, that quantum dots can convert one wavelength to another. And specifically for crops, what that means is that you can make a film of quantum dots and put it where your plants would be growing. So for example, in a lighthouse, in a greenhouse, and you can convert the incoming solar spectrum to match the most useful wavelengths of light to plants. So for example, for photosynthesis, the different compounds like chlorophyll that are in there have different wavelengths that they perform most efficiently at. So you can actually tune the incoming sunlight to be most useful to plants. And that's actually how you can increase those crop yields. That's super interesting. I think we read that it was the red wavelength that in particular leads to maybe better efficiency for the photosynthesis process. Why Why is that the case? Um, so I think, I mean, this is not my particular area of expertise, but I think chlorophylls have a couple wavelengths that they perform efficiently at. And some of those are obviously higher energy, so closer to the green, but there are also wavelengths in the red that are very useful to them. And then there are wavelengths that are not useful at all. So for example, near IR light or some of the ones intermediate between those you could basically build in whatever the idealized spectrum for the plants. So you can choose to, to recreate or to transform the incoming light to match only specifically those wavelengths where these chlorophylls are particularly active. And some of those are red and some of those are green. That's super cool. So just to clarify here, so all you're doing is making a slight modification to the glass chemistry that's like makes up the greenhouse to essentially filter out that incoming white light to make this. So it's kind of it's not really being applied directly to the plants by any means. It's just kind of in the structure that's enclosing them. That's right. So it's very much like smart windows. So being able to make films of these and then install them. So it could either be in the glass or it could actually be in a sort of more flexible resin-based plastic film morphology. Oh, it sounds like such an elegant solution. It's very cool. Is it a different layer or like how exactly do you combine it with the glass or how do you, you know, at least keep the system to be as efficient as possible? So I think for right now, a lot of the technology is sort of built on how we like to implement quantum dots into displays. So that's being able to make an actual plastic film of that. So that's a freestanding sheet. So for the example of displays, that can be just put in directly where any sort of down converter layer would normally go. And for greenhouses, this would be a plastic film that could be 
added to the glass for now. So I think it's just technically an easier to platform to work with. We've talked about quantum dots. We've talked about material science behind this technology. So what would you like for our listeners to take away from this conversation about the the potential impact of quantum dots in the future? Quantum dots are really beautiful materials. And there's a lot of hard science behind making them, how they work, and what sorts of applications they can go into. But I think what's really exciting about them and powerful is that they enable beauty in the world around us, just that these displays and other technologies that you can make are just really exciting to see in person. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That was great. It was fantastic to learn more about all these quantum dot materials and how they can help us inspire the next generation of elegant display products or, you know, modifying light and using it more efficiently in a variety of applications. And so, you know, if our listeners wanted to learn more about this technology or, you know, continue to inquire more about the work that Nanosys does, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? They could definitely reach out to our sort of marketing team. That's Jeff Yurick here. I think there should be a direct contact through our website and we're always happy to talk about the technology, answer questions and hear people's ideas also and their own perceptions. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll make sure to uh, include a link to the company contact page in the show notes and everything like that. So thank you, Elon, for, for joining us today. We really did appreciate you coming onto the show. Definitely. I had a really good time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to support us and the growth of this podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends and family. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow the show with our community's input. So you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes below. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.